Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Diane Durkin, who is President of Loyalty Factor. Today we will discuss 10 Critical Steps to Achieving Magnetic Leadership. Diane is also founder of Loyalty Factor, a consulting and training company. Her background includes finance, direct sales, international marketing and training, and development. Diane is the author of two books, The Loyalty Factor, Building Employee, Customer, and Brand Loyalty, and The Power of Magnetic Leadership, It's Time to Get Real, which we will be discussing today. Diane, welcome. Thank you so much. Before we get started discussing the critical steps themselves, let's start with a really basic concept, if you would bear with us. When we talk about leadership, what are we talking about? Would you help us define what leadership is? What, what exactly does that mean? Well, for me, I mean, there's a lot of definitions out there. But for me, the definition is to be the absolute best that you can be and help others be the absolute best that they can be. Now, what that means is we all have unique qualities, unique strengths, and areas for development. And we clearly need to understand what our strengths are, what our areas for development are, and make sure we either um, educate ourselves on how to get better, try to get better in those areas for development, or hire people that can compensate for our deficiencies. And when you were looking at being the best we can be and then helping others be the best they can be is do the same thing with other people. Help them understand what they're really good at. Help them understand what are the areas that they need development help with and help them grow in those areas. I often say it's looking for, you know, those shining eyes and figuring out, oh, God, this person's got this quality. Let me develop that quality in that person. Good leaders know how to do that, and good leaders can do that very, very effectively. So that's my definition of good leadership. What's the difference between leading and managing? I know that for a lot of people, they may seem like they're the same, but you can manage someone without leading and vice versa. Is that right? Exactly. And I and I want to say that to begin with, you need both. Okay, um, ideally you want to have both within the one person. Leading, the way I put it, is setting that vision, setting that direction, uh, getting people to move in that direction, engaging them, empowering them, enriching them, um, getting them excited, motivated, inspired about where the organization is going. It's a visionary type of aspect. The managing is the day-to-day activities. It's, you know, planning the budgets, planning the schedules, planning the, um, uh, the individual roles and responsibilities that people are going to need to achieve that vision. Obviously, you need both. I mean, people need to understand where the organization is going, how the organization is going to strategically get there, and what are the steps that we need to get there. Managers then can take that strategic direction and implement it on a day-to-day basis. So that's sort of my definition of the difference. And um, I firmly believe that if you can have both in the same person, um, it's really it's great. Now, at the upper levels of an organization, obviously you want more of the visionaries as opposed to the people that are going to get into the day-to-day activities and micromanage because that's not healthy. Um, 
at the other end of the spectrum, you've got to have some managers within the organization that can take that vision, that can take that strategic direction and make it a reality. And so that's sort of the combination of both. So sometimes you have people who have a big picture sort of perspective but aren't particularly good with the details, and other times you need people who are very good with the details and leave the big picture concept to someone else. Am I getting that right? Exactly. Exactly. And you need that combination in an organization. Otherwise, nothing will get done. (laughs) Your visionaries will be out there, you know, coming up with all these creative visionary ideas, but uh, taking it to implementation will not happen. So it's really a combination of both. One of the definitions that I saw in your book that caught my attention was a leader motivates, inspires, and energizes people by connecting the vision, values, purpose, and business goals of the organization to individual values and needs. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's very... I I say it's very simple, but the reality of the situation is sometimes we forget the simple things of life. And I think, um, and I when you talk, I talk about purpose, vision, and values, and that to me is a combined vision for an organization. And purpose is you need to be clear about what does this organization do besides make money. It's not just about making money. What are we here to do? How are we changing the world? People really want to understand that. Um, It answers that very important question. What business are we in and what difference are we making in the world? The values are what are the principles that are going to guide us, Uh, the behaviors that we expect from people on a daily basis. Uh, It could be, you know, honesty, respect, um, integrity, um, making sure we value people and their ideas, uh, we inspire creativity, those types of things. And then the vision expresses where the, where the organization is going in the future. It's, um, it's a clear picture of the future that will help inspire people. So that's my definition of the, you know, the vision, the purpose, the vision, and the values of an organization. Now, what you need to do is relate that to individual people's values. Now, what I say is, if there's certain values of an organization, and the people don't have those similar values, they're not going to be as productive and as effective in that organization. Uh, and I often tell people, if you don't agree with the way this organization is being managed, if you don't agree with the values that this organization exhibits, then you probably need to leave because it's not an organization where you're going to thrive in. It's not an organization where you're going to be the best that you can be in. And in many cases, you're not going to be happy. And if you're not happy, that can re- lead to health issues. And so it's really combining making sure that the organizational values meet the personal values of a particular person. Does that help you? Yes, yes. It makes me wonder, if you think about the very large organizations, the corporations, the Fortune 500s, for example, that so many 
people look at as icons and role models, one of the ideas that comes to my mind is that they have many employees. It's, it's not exceptional for them to have tens of thousands of employees. And so I'm wondering what percentage of those employees are, first of all, aware of what the vision and the values the mission of the company they work for are, and when they are, how many of them share those or are just working there because they need a job? Do you have any insights you can share with us on that? Well, I think um, it's interesting because Fortune does the best companies to work for every year, and um, in the end of January, they came up with their newest listing. And many of the Fortunes are on there. Um, Google, for example, is number one. I mean, you think of Google. I mean, what is the vision? What are the values of Google? I mean, they're pretty explicit. And people work there. I mean, they get more applicants than anyone else that I know of. Uh, I mean, it's huge, the number of applicants they get for every job that they have. And it's... um, it's inspiring, and people work there because of the value system, because of the difference that they feel that they're making within that organization, and because of the philosophies of that organization. Uh, so that's, that's you know, a huge company. Zappos is another one that's always been, um, I mean, they've had a unique culture, you know, They consider themselves fun and a little weird in some cases is what they call themselves. And they're on the fortunes list. They were number 11 last year. They're 31 this year. Uh, And even after being acquired by Amazon, they've maintained what they call that zany culture. And people feel really good about it. And it's a, you know, it's part of their whole value system. It's the way they, um, they do business. It's the way they, uh, operate. Um, it's all of the things that they do to uh, make a difference in the world. I mean, one of their things was, hey, we're going to be the best when we ship product. I mean, we're going to be out there 24 hours a day. Customer service is going to be our number one quality. And that got so ingrained within that organization that people love working there, um, and they've made it fun to work there, and they all understand what those values are. The values are that customer comes first. Um, so that's two examples, and I can go on and on with a couple of other examples as well. Um, you know, Wegmans, which is a um, grocery store, uh, and I just love Wegmans. Um, you know, Wegmans does, they have a culture that learning is the most important thing uh, in doing business, and they train their people. I mean, you wouldn't think that a grocery store would do a whole lot of uh invest a whole lot of money in training people, but they train people really, really well in whatever it is. In one of my books, I think I highlighted them where um, someone from the cheese department, they sent them actually over to France to learn everything they could learn about cheeses. And when they started doing Chilean wines, they sent somebody down to Chile to learn all about the vineyards in Chile. And it's all about the training the people so that they can offer the best customer service in the world. And they, once again, I mean, they've been number four, number five on the best companies to work for for a number of years, 15 consecutive years. They've been right up there in the top ten, I believe. Last year they were number four, and this year they're number five. Uh, but they clearly articulate their vision. Uh, they they recruit um, for the values of caring and trust, and they live those values on an everyday basis. 
um, they firmly believe that the more you invest in training, the more it comes back to the bottom line. And they've certainly seen that as they expand um, across the country. So it's, um, I think big companies can do it as well as little companies. Um, it's just you've got to communicate, 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 and you cannot over-communicate. And everything that you do within that organization has got to relate back to those values. You know, I've worked with another company where we actually changed the performance appraisal process and their systems to come back to the values of that organization. And how do we measure people against the, the four, the five, the six values that this organization has? Um, so those are a few examples. And like I said, I could go on and on, but I'm sure you have other questions <laughs> that you would like to ask. Sure. One of the things that comes to mind is that often there is a difference between the stated values, the stated culture of a company, and what actually happens in practice. And that double message can be confusing what one company says in their employee handbook, but what they do in practice if they don't match, can send mixed signals to employees. How can leaders, effective leaders, deal with a situation like that? Well, they have to start doing it themselves. Okay, if the leaders are not practicing the values, that's not going to work. And, um, you know, when you have a situation like that, the most important thing you have to do is get the leadership team to agree, once again, re-look at those values and decide how are they acting according to those values. Um, are they practicing those values? If they say one thing and do another, everybody in the organization is going to say, oh, it's just it's not worth doing because they're going to change their minds or they're not living the values. And um, it's going to cause uh, resentment within the organization. It's going to cause loss of productivity. And then that results in the loss of the bottom line results. So it has to start with the top, and the leaders and the managers have got to live those values. Um, JetBlue is an example of living the values that they set out. When they first came out, uh, when they first started setting up um, JetBlue, the founders got together and actually decided what were going to be the shared values that they wanted to establish within their organization. And they had safety caring, integrity, fun, and passion. Now, what they do is they hire for those values and they measure people. The leadership team is measured against all of those values. How do you inspire greatness in people? How do you treat people right? How do you do the right thing for people? How do you communicate with your team consistently? How do you encourage initiative and innovation? You know, those are principles of leadership that come right from the top. And, I mean, people love working for that organization. You see the success of that organization growing and growing and growing where many other airlines have lost money over the years. JetBlue has continually grown and expanded. And people just simply love working for them. And people love flying them because it employee loyalty drives your customer loyalty, which drives your brand. So um, it starts with the top, and you've got to decide what those values are, and the top has got to live those values if they expect people within the organization to live them. 
The title of your book, or the subtitle, is It's Time to Get Real, R, uh, capital R, capital E, capital A, capital L. Uh, what are you referring to there? Okay, it's um, an acronym for um, R is recruit the right people in the right place at the right time and retain them. E is engage, empower, and enrich employees and provide them the right environment for success. And that will create the earnings. So that's what I call the big E. A is appreciate people. What do people want most? And it's not money. It's to be valued, it's to be rewarded, and to be recognized. And L is leadership. That leads to the loyalty. Um, and it's not all about the ego. It's a, It's really about the purpose. Um it's about attracting the right leadership quality, uh, being the right leader, um, and really resulting in that loyalty and that productivity of employees. So it's a, a, a great acronym to look at, you know, how do we recruit the right people? How do we engage and empower them? How do we appreciate them? And how do we build that loyalty? What is magnetic leadership? What is the difference between leadership and magnetic leadership? Okay. Well, I use the magnetic leadership just like a magnet. I mean, think about um, what a magnet does. It attracts objects. Magnetic leaders do the same thing. They attract the right people in the right place at the right time, and they are able to retain them. If you think about a magnetic leader, a magnetic leader is somebody that has got it all together. Um, they have the vision set. They know where they're going. Um, they, they're cordial with people. They know how to treat people. People want to be around them. Um, a magnetic leader attracts the right people. They also um, engage those people. They uh, help those people feel really good. Um, and if you, you think about going to a party, and, you know, who are the people that you want to be around? You want to be about the positive people. You want to be the, around the people that are confident with themselves. You want to be with the people that uh, feel good about themselves, um, that admit when they're wrong and don't try to be egomaniacs in any way. Um, and that's the same thing of magnetic leaders. You want the... the they're just out there. They recognize their strengths, but they also recognize their weaknesses. They uh, honor and respect people, and in doing so, they attract uh, the most positive people, the most competent people, and uh, the most energized people. And that's the difference between a magnetic leader and a leader that may have a little bit of an ego. And let's face it, there are a lot of leaders out there that do have that. Uh, ego and um, you know like I'm better I'm the boss I can do this you can't those types of things and that doesn't necessarily sit well with people Um, because we all have strengths we all have areas for development and we all need to recognize what our strengths are what our areas for development are and admit uh, to what we're good at and what we're not so good at. So that's my definition of the difference between magnetic leadership and regular leadership. What then are the ten critical steps to being a magnetic leader? Well, the first one is it's all about setting that vision. 
And we talked a little bit about that just a few minutes ago, which is the purpose, the vision, and the values. You've got to be very purposeful um, about um, making sure that you know exactly where we're headed, how we're going to get there, and be able to communicate that. And magnetic leaders communicate it powerfully, passionately, and purposely. I call it the three Ps. They clearly have a passion for where they're doing, where they're going, where the organization is going, and how the organization can get there. And they have a real belief system around that. And so it's not only developing that vision, but also communicating it with uh, with the three Ps, the power, the passion, and the purposefulness. So that's the first step. Um, and guiding people through that process. The next one is to really identify their leadership type. Know who they are, know what type of leader they are, know what works for them, what doesn't work for them. It's calling, you know, self-awareness. Um, see yourself as others see you. Uh, sometimes people have a misconception of how they are viewed and how they are seen. And I'm saying make sure you do some self-reflection to really understand what your real strengths are, what your real weaknesses are, and how other people see you. Um, you know, I talked about find that passion, find that purpose of your leadership. Be comfortable in your own skin. Um, be authentic and be genuine. And just be self-aware of who you are. And I often tell leaders, you know, be the person that you want your grandchildren to admire and to talk about. So figure out who you are, what makes you tick, and, um, you know, what you're good at, what you're not good at, and follow your conscience. So that's the self-awareness piece. The other thing is, the third piece, I would say, is to track your leadership development progress. As leaders, we need to be growing personally and professionally every single day. And I tell people that if you put your head on that pillow at night and you haven't learned something new that day, you need to put the light back on and read a book, read a magazine, uh, do whatever you need to do to learn something new. It's all about learning. It's all about reflecting on what we've learned and how we're changing. In fact, there's another little tip that I've been giving my leaders lately, which is at the end of every day, write down the three things that you could do better or that you could have done better that particular day um, because that helps you learn, that helps you grow, and it helps you um, move to the next day. It's all about learning and growing professionally. And you do that not only by reading and, and being part of organizations, but listening to your people. It's amazing. You know, that janitor, they may have some really good ideas, or that receptionist, 
she is extremely knowledgeable and can make some real good recommendations. Listening to those recommendations, you not necessarily take all of them, but you listen, you reflect on them, and you learn from individuals, from people, from experiences, uh, from your staff, from everybody that you interact with. We can learn something from every um, person in the world. Um, and I think I just mentioned to you, I just got back from Asia, and it was a fascinating trip. Um, you know, the U.S. thinks it's the world power in many cases. And the reality of the situation is we can learn so, so much from other cultures and other countries. And that's what leader, good leaders do. They learn from all aspects of the world. And right now we are a world economy and we need to pick up and learn the biggest things that we can from the various aspects. When you talk about leadership types, what types are there? How do you know? I know this sounds very basic, but again, sometimes when you're looking at concepts that are not part of your day-to-day work mm-hmm. assignment, if you will, they don't necessarily come to the surface right away. What leadership types are there, and how do you know which one you are? Well, there are a number of assessments out there that can be used. Myers-Briggs is one of the um, uh, one of the better-known ones. Um, I'm not particularly uh, sold on Myers-Briggs, um, and the reason is that it you know goes into ESTJ, INFP, ENFP, and I think some of your listeners would be familiar with that. And what I have found is a lot of people. Uh, they get confused. What's the E? What's the I? What's the F? What's the P? And so forth. I think there are some simpler models out there. I particularly like a model that has four styles and it's based upon behaviors as opposed to personalities. And um, it's very simple because it. what I like about it is it um, uh, assesses people under both favorable conditions as well as stressful conditions. And so I'll break it up into the four, and we all have a little bit of all of this in us, and it depends upon the situation we're in and the people we're interacting with. But the biggest thing about this is understanding your style, but then understanding how you can flex your style to work with other people. And that's the most important part. It's the flexibility. It doesn't matter what your style is. Any style can work effectively with any other person in the world as long as the flexibility is there. Uh, But let me quickly um, describe each of them. The first one is pretty much a get-it-done type of person, results-oriented. This is a person that just wants to make it happen. They want to move forward. They're a calculated risk-taker. Uh, not a high risk, but a calculated risk taker. They love to be in control of situations. Um, uh, they, um, um, like I said, results are to get it done, somewhat competitive in their nature. Um, maybe not as people-oriented as one may want, uh, but if you've got a job and you want to get that job done, they're going to get it done. They may upset some people in the process um, In the if they're just that type of a style. Another one is what I call the concept-oriented person. This is a very innovative, very creative, very imaginative person. Um, Each of these obviously has strengths and areas for development. Uh, The strengths of the first one that I talked about is obviously getting it done. 
um, area for development is sometimes they can walk over people in the process. The next one, the concept-oriented person is, I mean, the strength is they have creative, innovative ideas. They're always thinking outside the box. The disadvantage, of course, is that they may not be good at implementing that. Um, they may have, they may need a very detailed person to take their ideas and put them into an implementation plan or a project plan to make it happen. Um, the next one is more of a relationship-oriented person. Uh, this would be opposite of the first one I talk about. They are uh, very much people-oriented. Um, they work in teams extremely well. They want to be sure that everyone in the organization is on board before they move forward. Uh, as a result, they may act a little slower than some of the other people that I described previously. Uh, at the same time, they will get the job done. It's just that they're going to make sure that uh, everybody is in tune with it. It might be a committee decision, those types of things. Um, now, they can drive the results-oriented people crazy because the results-oriented people want to move forward now, whereas these people say, well, well, let's just wait a little bit. Let's make sure everybody's on board with this. The combination of the two works really, really well. Um, and then there's the detail-oriented people. Uh, these are opposite of the conceptual type that I described. Uh, and they, you know, everything is laid out very succinctly. Um, they want to make sure they get it right. Uh, they don't like to do things twice. Uh, everything is numbered in a process. Um, they, um, they're, they're known for their expertise. They will research stuff to the nth degree. Um, where your conceptual person is just going to go with the gut, these people are going to say, well, wait, let's verify this. Um, now, once again, those two complement each other extremely well. And if you have those capabilities in the same person, you've got a wonderful combination because you've got the ideas, but then you get the person that can then, hey, once they get the ideas flushed out in their own brain, they can go into the detail mode and make it happen. An organization needs all of the above, obviously. Um, and as I said, every person has a little bit of all of that in them. It's just a matter of how much of one we have versus the other and how flexible are you in um, managing through that scenario uh, with different types of people. You know, some people, um, if they're detail-oriented, will drive others absolutely crazy. We have to have a little bit more patience, and you have to look at how you approach that person in order to get the results that you need in the time frame in which you need it. For example, you might have to put some deadlines on it, those types of things. So um, that's a basic understanding of the various styles, and there's a numerous assessments out there that can be used to determine what a person's style is. That's very helpful. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Does your leadership style play an important role in the relationship that you have with the people that you are leading? And if so, is it important for you to be aware of what their style is? I am so glad you asked that question. Um, absolutely. It is critical for you to understand your style and then for you to understand the people that you're working with. And we do this with a lot of teams, um, management teams, uh, leadership teams, executive teams, all of the above. Um, in fact, I just got a call yesterday from um, 
an individual, a human resources person, who said, you know, we've got a great manager, really um, gets stuff done, but can't seem to work with the other people in his organization. And so we're going to do a styles workshop for them um, to figure out what are the other styles within the organization and how they can work better together as a team. Um, What's really interesting is sometimes you'll find teams where there's a predominant style and when you have that predominant style in a lot of people that are of the same style, that's where you see major conflicts because they're fighting for control or they're fighting to make sure they're right or they're fighting for the best idea or whatever the case might be. And they're in conflict with one another because they're the same. And sometimes you can have conflicts because they're the same or conflicts because they're not the same. And it's identifying you know, who are, who are we? What are we? I have had teams that have become so much more effective as a result of learning their individual styles and then also learning the styles of the people that work with them. And they'll go, oh, now I understand why you always do that. Or I understand why you always say that. Or I'll understand now why when I bring you something, you're always asking me these particular questions. And it's a whole new revelation and a whole new aha. And it helps teams work far, far more effectively together and companies to grow and prosper a lot more as a result of that. So thanks again for asking that question. It's a really, really important point. One of the lessons I learned a while back when one of the boards that I served on was the importance of diversity in in a board and diversity in leadership and, and in a group in general. And we examine the concept of reaching out and recruiting, specifically recruiting new members, not just for the skill set that they brought to the table, but also for the type of leadership that we needed to fill so that if there were many people already on board of a particular type and we were missing, say, if we use the examples that you shared with us, if if we had several results-oriented but we didn't have enough detail-oriented or relationship-oriented, that it was important that we find leaders to join us that brought some of those qualities with them. Do you agree with that? I totally agree with that, and that was a very smart move on that board's part. Um, you absolutely need diversity in the style. But I also want to capitalize on what you're talking about with the diversity issue. You need diversity of gender. You need diversity of uh, race. And you also need age diversity um, because, um, you know, a baby boomer is going to think differently than a nexter or a um, exer, for example when you get into the generational differences. And I think companies um, sometimes have boards that are all of the same um, age um, caliber. And they, right now especially, we need to start thinking in terms of what the newer generations need, want, both from a consumer perspective as well as from an employee management perspective. And I think having a diversity of age levels on a board is also important. So the styles piece, yes, absolutely, you need that. And a lot of boards have now gotten to a point where they recognize that. But I think many of them now need to start recognizing that they need the diversity in gender, race, age, etc., to complete the, um, the spectrum.
I don't know if this is exactly within the critical steps, but one of the the issues that I see often come up with leadership is the idea of the dissenting opinion. And maybe because I've been hearing a lot about the Supreme Court lately, uh, that the phraseology is uh, sounding legal, but the idea of someone who has a different perspective from the rest of the group and how important they are for the leader to listen to that perspective. Would you tell us about that? Well, I often call those people the devil's advocate. <laughs> and um, you need those devil's advocates on um, on a team um, because they come from that different perspective. What often happens, though, is that um, they're not necessarily, because they're off-the-wall thinkers, oftentimes that's the way they're described, um, they're not listened to or they're saying, oh, here comes another crazy idea or something of that nature. And it's up to the the primary leader to really respect that person and help that person to be supported and appreciated. Um, at the same time, you know, if the person is so off the wall all the time, you need to put them in check. And a good leader knows how to do that. He knows how to listen to those people, respect their ideas, but at the same time recognize when those ideas are too far-fetched for the organization or too off the wall for the organization. And when it is upsetting the rest of the team or um, dislodging the rest of the team from the focus that they need to have on where they're going and how they're going to get there. And that's where that vision that I talked about earlier really comes into play. If you've got that vision really solidified, then you can look at those ideas and say, wait a minute, does this fit into where we want to go for the future? Does this fit into our strategic direction and where we're headed for the future? So it's that type of good leadership that really has that focus, understands the values, but then can also honor the creative, innovative, off-the-wall thinking that somebody may bring to the organization. What is the next step now that you've, you've got your vision, you know what your leadership type is and the, the type of individuals that you're working with, now what do you do? Okay, now it's all about recruiting and, and um, hiring the right people. And the first thing I say you need to do in that step is really look at what is the culture of our organization and recruit for your culture. As I go and work with companies, one of the things that I find is I'll say, well, what makes a person successful in your organization? And the things I get are team player, uh, self-motivator, um, somebody that can deal with change, um, somebody that is um, uh, doesn't need a whole lot of leadership management direction, um, somebody that's very loyal to the organization. Those are the things I hear. So understand what is the culture and what makes somebody very successful within your organization and hire for that culture. Um, and then hire for the skill sets that you need and the experience that you need. Now, I know there's going to be some technology companies out there that are going to say, look, I need that technology expertise. I need that cloud expertise. 
Yes, you do. There's no question about it. But make sure you hire not only for the technological aspects, but what I call the soft skills aspects as well. The team building, the self-motivation, the positiveness that that person has. And there's ways to do that. Um, A lot of the technology people that I've worked with have difficult time in their interviewing process. Well, how do I go after those things? And we help them with the questioning process of how they can discover what is is um, behind that person and how that person is going to fit into your culture. So that's the next step: is make sure you recruit um, people that are going to be that are going to fit in with your value system and your culture. Uh, otherwise, they're going to get frustrated. They're going to leave, or you're going to want them to leave. The next step is once you get them on board, you got to engage them. You got to empower them. You got to enrich them. Um, you need to be, a lot of times in the interview cycle, people will say, well, we hired you because we want you to do this. We need your creative thinking. And then once they come into the organization, they stifle that thinking. They stifle that um, uh, ambition that the person has. Um, and they force them to get into the culture of the organization as opposed to necessarily um helping them make the changes that they initially hired the person to do. So you need to make sure, I say, you hire people that have brains um, and that have great brains. Allow them to use that brains. Honor them, respect them, and uh, their ideas and their creativity. And don't necessarily set false expectations with people when you hire them. You know, if you really do want to change and that's really what you're looking to do, make sure you um, give them the uh, responsibility uh, to take on those changes and to empower them to make sure that they can make those changes within the organization. So it's engaging, empowering, and enriching your employees. Now, suppose you have some major business issues within the organization. A lot of times management saying, well, we've got to address this, we've got to address this, we got to, and they take on so much that they can't necessarily address everything at once. This is where it helps to engage and empower the employees to solve some of these major business issues. If employees feel that there's a major process that needs improvement, then ask them to form a small team to develop new processes or come up with recommendations of how those processes and those procedures can be improved upon. It is amazing the ideas and the creativity that individuals will have once they are asked. I say ask Listen, engage them, and then make sure you implement them. If you ask for ideas, then make sure you honor those ideas and um, allow people to implement some of those ideas for the future. If for whatever reason their ideas are, once again, off the wall and are not implementable, you need to explain the why behind it. Why can't we do this at this particular time? Why is it that this won't fit into our particular culture? Because sometimes these these small teams may have um, not not have the full perspective of the business impact of what they're recommending, and so they need to be educated. So it's engaging people, empowering them, allowing them to come up with solutions. Um, the other one is next step would be to create an environment that fosters creativity and innovation. And that's just 
beyond the physical environment. Um, we do a lot of work with call centers, and in call centers, what's really interesting is you know they have the um, a breakout room where people can go because call centers can be extremely um, stressful environments. And so they have a, a room if you've had a particularly stressful call you can go into and just sort of veg out for a few minutes. Um, they have some, uh, some of them even have like pool tables and those kinds of things where you can go and stress out or bean bags that you can sit in and so forth. Um, so that's the physical part, but it's beyond the physical part. It's um, connecting with people and um, asking people questions. I often say good leaders' questions are your secret weapon. You know, how are things going? Oh, good. How, if there was one thing you could change, what would you do? And that a good leader is open to those ideas, and that creates this whole new um culture of creativity and innovation where people feel like they can speak up, they can make changes, and the person will say, well, gee, you know, that's not a bad idea. Let me think about that. I'll get back to you on that and make sure that they get back to the people about it. So it's creating that work environment that fosters creativity and innovation. Uh, the next piece I cannot undervalue, which is to appreciate and reward employees. Um, one of the things that people need to recognize is that money is not the primary motivator. The primary motivator for people is really feeling like they're in on things. And by in on things, I mean they know that there's a great vision out there, there's a great purpose out there, they understand what it is, and they are all moving in that right direction. The second thing is feeling appreciated for the work done, especially today. Um, you know, with all the downsizing that has taken place, people are expected to work longer hours, do more with less people. And many, many, many have come and lived up to that expectation. They need to feel appreciated. People, when they feel appreciated, do not want to leave a particular organization. And the appreciation doesn't have to be money awards or high awards. It can be a simple thank you. It can be, golly, you did a great job on that. Um, it could be little, what I call, um, small rewards. Um, I have, I tell managers, you should have a goodie bag under your desk. And in that goodie bag, you have a chocolate bar, you have a $4 gift certificate to McDonald's, you have a you know, $5 gift certificate to Starbucks. Uh, if you're here on the Northeast, you have a, um, a Dunkin' Donuts um, coffee. And if somebody does something really great, you say, you know, you really did a great job with that customer or you really did a great job on that project or thank you so much for meeting the deadlines. And, you know, you hand them a, I know you love Starbucks, so here's a Starbucks gift certificate. I know you're a Dunkin' Donuts person. Here's a Dunkin' Donuts gift certificate. Those little rewards, those little thank yous mean more than anything else to people. It's the most underutilized words in the English language. Thank you. Thank you for doing a great job. Now, if you've got project teams and you're, um, you know, you've got a team that, you know, just 
stayed up all night or worked really hard to meet a particular deadline or was working for three or four months to meet a particular deadline. I mean, you need to appreciate them in some way, whether it be a pizza lunch or, um, you know, bringing the ice cream truck in or whatever it is that will work for that particular team. Uh, you know, maybe giving them a, a half a day off if you can. Um, that is more valued than anything else right now. It's those small things that people really, really appreciate. Um, so those are some ideas. Do you have any questions based upon those that we just talked about? Of course. Of course. Okay. <laughs> One of the, the thoughts that came to mind when you were talking about creating a work environment that fosters creativity and innovation and recruiting the right people, engaging, empowering, and enriching them, and you mentioned it in passing, was that you should make sure that when you hire people, you allow them to do what you hire them for. But oftentimes, I would say all too frequently, there is a tendency, I think it's sort of the herd mentality is how I see it, to put pressure on people to conform. I've been shocked to see it among leadership groups, groups that are training leaders in groups where leaders are interacting with each other, how much pressure there is for individuals to confirm to conform to the rest of the group's inclinations. And if it's so powerful, how can you protect against that tendency? Because there's nothing stronger than the pressure of culture, corporate culture. Right. And part of that has to do with the hiring manager. I mean, they need to be very clear with the other people in the organization. Look, we've hired so-and-so because they bring a bit different perspective, because um, they they have had prior experience that we do not have had or that we have not had in this organization in the past. And it's important for us to have this. And so we need to learn from this person. We need to... Um, listen to their ideas, and then we also need to um, make sure that they understand what our culture is. And so it's going to be a give-and-take relationship. And a lot of times it's the manager that needs to, um, the manager or the leader of the organization that needs to reinforce that uh, because you're absolutely right. There's all of this, um, oh, that will never work here. Oh, we've tried that before. That's never going to work here. And unless the person is supported by the leader and manager in the organization, both for their own um, creativity and innovation, but also to work with the group and make sure the group understands, look, this is why we've hired this person. This is exactly the type of thinking we need to start doing. This is what we all need to do is start changing the way we do things. And um, not change everything, obviously. Preserve what works and work on the areas that need development. So uh, that would be the way I would, but you're absolutely right as far as um, there's a lot of pressure. You talked about showing appreciation and how important that is for Loyalty, if you will, that a lot of employees stay because they feel appreciated and they develop a relationship with the company. One of the things that is challenging with the appreciation is how to 
get the right amount of appreciation. And sometimes, for example, I've seen what I call lame appreciation, something that is totally inappropriate for the effort that was involved or a measure that is supposed to be expressing appreciation but in practice doesn't work. How do you ensure that your appreciation is really commensurate with the effort that's been exerted or that you hope is going to be exerted, etc.? Well, that's a tough one. Um, and the reason it's such tough is some certain people need more appreciation than others. Um, and certain styles of people need more than others. So you've got to, this is where, you know, understanding the styles of different people uh, comes into play. And also, some people like public appreciation and some don't. Uh, they would prefer the private appreciation. So you really need to understand the individual person. That's the first piece of it. The second piece of what you brought up is, um, you know, how do you, um, what do you do so that you, the people don't feel like they're being underappreciated or it's lame appreciation, as you said. Um, and that is, oh, God, that's a, that's a hard one because you got to, certain people just feel like, well, it's part of their job. Why should I appreciate them? You know, I'm paying them. And um, they need to understand that um, they will get far more from individuals and people will contribute much, much more if they have the little things. And the little things, as I said, is that simple thank you or great job, uh, whatever the case might be. Um, and, you know, sometimes they just need some encouragement from the outside and this is where a good HR department helps out a lot and can say, hey, you know, we really need to do something special for these people or we need to, you know, make sure we recognize that this team did an outstanding job. Um, and that sometimes it's just uh, the leader needs to be reminded because sometimes our leaders get so focused on getting the job done that they forget uh, about the, the people side of it. And, uh, you know, if they've got that style where they're the people person as well as the results-oriented, you don't have to worry. But if you have somebody that's very, very results-oriented, that's when the HR person needs to pop in and uh, make some recommendations. And that would be the way I would it's, – it's a support system. It's a everybody working together type of thing. Diane, one of the things that you talked about early on that resonated, I think, uh, a lot with me and maybe with a lot of our listeners was that you should strive to be authentic when you're a leader. How do you do that? And how do you draw that line between being yourself but keeping your privacy? Because there is a very clear line between the leader and the employees and there's a clear line that defines that you're not truly friends even though you might care about them. How do you define those lines? Well, it's um, being true to yourself, I think, is is the way I would define authentic. Um, And being genuine with all people. And um, part of that is the... um, being genuine with all people. And part of that is really um, being who you are. Um, And I call it 
not being compartmentalized. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, you know, there's there's people that you trust, and then there's trustworthy worthy people. And the people that you trust, you feel very comfortable with, you will um, work with on a regular basis, you will share information with them, versus people that um, are compartmentalized. And by that I mean they go to, uh, you know, they go to church on Sunday mornings and it's all goody-goody two-shoes. And then on Monday mornings, they're in the office and they're putting people down. That is not being genuine. Uh, That's not being authentic. And people will see that and it'll catch up to people over time. And so I recommend that, you know, really understand how do you build trust? Trust is the number one thing. And you've got to have a trusting environment with your people. You've got to be straightforward with them. You've got to be honest with them. Uh, You've got to admit when you're wrong. Um, And you've got to be, when you ask somebody, well, how are your children? You've got to be genuine around that. You really care about that. Um, I use the example sometimes of people walking down the hall and they'll say, well, how are you? And they keep walking and they never even listen to your answer. That's not necessarily being genuine, all right? How are you? Are you feeling? How are you feeling today? You know, how are things moving? How are a genuine interest in people, in what they're doing, and in the work? And you can detect that uh, pretty readily when people are communicating with you. So that would be my answer to that. It's not always easy, um, but it's. You know, going back to what I said earlier, be the person you want your grandchildren to admire and talk about. How genuine and authentic are you? What suggestions would you leave our listeners with, say three tips, Diane, that they might take back to their office, to their business, even perhaps to their home environment because sometimes we play leadership roles in our homes and uh, in our private lives. What tips, what suggestions would you share that they can apply, that they can take with them and integrate into their lives? Okay. The first one I would say is learn and grow every day, both personally and professionally. Uh, Keep your eyes and ears open. Learn from all kinds of people. Um, Always strive to be better than what you are today. And ask yourself at the end of every day, what are the three things that I could have improved upon to help today? The second one is listen. Uh, Listen to people. Engage people by asking questions but listen to them intently on their answers. And always be open to suggestions, always be open to new ideas, always be willing to change. Um, And change is not easy for any of us. But always ask the question, all right, why are we doing things this way? Does this make sense? And how can we improve And the last one is build your trust bank. 
people will follow you if they trust you. If you're not a trustworthy person, people are not going to follow you. You're not going to be able to influence change within your organization, within your family, or anywhere. If they're always wondering, well, what's in this for him or her versus how can we make this better as a group? So it's always about building that trust within the organization. So those would be my three things. Let me see if I can summarize them. At the end of each day, look at three things that you could have done that you can improve. Look at three things that you did that day that you can improve on. Listen to people, be open to suggestions, ideas, and change, and build your trust bank. Exactly. Diane, thank you for joining us from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It's been a pleasure. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Diane Durkin, President of Loyalty Factor, who discussed 10 critical steps to achieving magnetic leadership. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at HispanicNPR.com. That's HispanicNPR.com.